You are listening to the Twibbly Podcast, or This Week Was Way Better Last Year. Comedy podcast looking back at This Week in History. You can find us on Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, Podbean, or wherever you like to get your podcasts from. You can find us and or message us over on Facebook and Instagram using TWWWBLY. Welcome back to Twibbly, or this week was way better last year. My name is Bill with one L. With me, he just looks at those waves and says, Hey, bud, let's party. It's Jeff McLodge-Huge. Hey. I just gave myself a round of applause for that. <laughs> What's up? What's going on? How are you? Uh, I'm all right, man. I'm good. I'm sort of riding high, and the uh, last couple of weeks I've had, it's been super busy, but not busy in like a bad or strenuous like mental way it's just been busy but busy good okay and i had the opportunity to burn off a little bit of time with a six-year-old my girlfriend's daughter okay i got roped into babysitting for a few hours which incidentally was really fun go on do tell i spent that time sort of introducing this kid to spongebob squarepants that she didn't really have any experience with before that's like not 20 years ago that was like you couldn't be a kid without spongebob that was like required I'm sorry, you can't be six years old until you've watched this amount of SpongeBob. Right, and SpongeBob was like in everywhere. It was everywhere. Yeah. Anyway, but uh, again, my kids grew up, and and I watched it a million thousand times when they were six and seven years old. And to sit down and like watch kid experience it for that first time again, and really start to laugh at the jokes that they're again that they're seeing for the first time. Jokes that I know, that I know the punchlines to, I know the beats of. And watching her like this, this continuous sort of sort of rolling joy that kind of came out of an hour of watching episodes on TV was really fun, and it reminded me of how much fun it is to introduce people to things that you really like or enjoy. Oh, and how that can give life to those things again that it, you hadn't really spent any time with maybe for years. Years ago, I was uh, working with this theater group. And I really hit it off with the other people that were in the cast with me, even though they were considerably younger than I was. And I had just bought this house, you know, and they were all like in college. So most of them were still living with their parents. So I used to do movie nights over here and they would all come over, you know, just so they they had a place to be besides school and besides home and stuff like that. And, you know, we watched a bunch of movies. And what was cool was showing them movies that they had never seen before. Like, I remember showing uh, them Psycho, and one of them had never, not only had he had never seen Psycho, he knew next to nothing about it. He knew a couple of the beats, like he knew it took place at a hotel. He knew about the shower sequence, but he didn't know the whole Norman and Norma dynamic, you know, twist ending, blah, 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 blah. So that when Norman popped out at the end wearing the dress, my friend Nick was like, what, wait, what, what? You know, it really, (laughs) it really hooked him, you know, by surprise. Like, I know the first time that I saw that movie, I already knew the, you know, the ending, you know? So to experience it at least vicariously with somebody that 
didn't see that coming at all. That was really, really fun. Before you go on, this begs a question for me. Which version of Psycho did you share? The Alfred Hitchcock one. Oh, all right. Well, I was just checking. I was just, I know you're the only person in the universe who likes the, the Gus Van Zandt one. So I was curious as to which one you would share. I didn't really know the kids all that well, and I wasn't about to, like, mm-hmm. you know, open up with a, a close-up of Van Hesh's asshole. So. Fair yeah. enough. <laughs> That's not a way to make friends. <laughs> no. Or at least not keep yeah. them. And then we also watched the very first Friday the 13th, and they were all so skeptical because all they know is Jason, you know? And I was like, no, the first Friday the 13th is an amazing thriller horror movie. There's a lot of tension. A lot. It's, it's a great horror movie. Whenever Jason pops out of the lake, same kid that freaked out on Norman Bates nearly jumped off the couch because it's a great pop scare. Yeah. Jeez, don't show that kid Halloween. <laughs> All right, so before we move into the show proper, I do have my very popular and always very well-received trivia question. Hey, Jeff. Uh-oh. You, you, you Uh-oh. Like, Nobody here by that You name. like video games? Did your mom give you some quarters? Hey, listen. Uh... <laughs> In the Smithsonian Institute, there are three video games. One is Pong. Okay. The other is okay. Pac-Man. What is the third video game in the Smithsonian Institute? Ah, I have an idea, and I will save my guaranteed-to-be-incorrect guess for the end of the show. Right. But this is going to be the week beginning, April the 25th, and it's my turn to start, but I'm going to forfeit it over to you. It is your turn to start. April 25th, 1901, New York becomes the first state in the Union to require license plates on automobiles. New York? There may not. How many automobiles could there have been? In 1901. In New York, probably a lot. Think about it. It's New York. They were probably the first state to charge for parking spaces before there was even cars there. (laughs) Yeah, probably. The first license plate were neat. They were expected to be made by the owner, and they had the owner's initials on them. So it would be, for example, if I had a car, whatever the heck that would be in 1901, because the Model T didn't come out until 1910, the Thomas Flyer or something like that, I'd have to make one that was like JRM, make it out of wood or leather or something, hang it off of the bumper. Not that anyone would know what it meant. I don't even know if you had to send in something to somewhere and say, here's here's a nickel, and here's what JRM means, and that's why it's tied to this car. There's a lot of people in Rhode Island who do just that, actually. <laughs> I have definitely seen my share of cardboard plates taped in windows lately, so I'm not sure what's going on. But Now, you live in New Hampshire, and in all of my treks up, I notice a lot of people have custom license plates. They're not such a thing in Massachusetts because you have to pay extra. Like your, your registration, yeah. I think registration in Massachusetts is like $60 every other year, which is what I pay. And I think you have a custom license plate that's like double that. Uh, for here, I, I'm going to say this, and then I'm going to feel bad about it, but I have two custom plates on the cars that my kids drive. Because uh, I make that kind of money. The good thing, one of the few uh, of living in New Hampshire, is that you only have to pay for custom plates once. And you only ever have to pay for plates one time. And it's double the cost, but I think regular license plates are 35 bucks, and custom plates are 70 Huh. You just have to wait an extra 10 or 12 days for them to be made in one of the prisons that makes them <laughs> um, north of Concord. No, that's I'm not even being a funny guy. That's literally where they come really? from. Really? I've always heard that as a cliche, and I didn't think it was true. That's nah, real. Banging out license plate was a prison job, and it really is? That's funny. Yep. 
Wow. Just when you think you know a guy. Now, wait, you only have to do the registration once? Yeah, you only have to pay for the registration for the car one time. Every year, you have to go and re-register it, and you pay a state tax, and you pay a town tax that's part of the registration that updates the registration in your glove box, but... You never have to pay for the plates again. I know. I talked to like different people all over the country and the way cars are registered and inspected and all that, not only how, but when varies so much from state to state that it's just, it's very confusing. Like I was talking to my friend from Cincinnati and she's like, you mean it's not on your birthday? I'm like, what? No, that's insanity. What are you talking about? (laughs) It's birthday here in in the grand state. That's insanity. What are you talking about? Yeah, you have to get it done by your birthday. You can do it before and a little bit after, and then inspection is 10 days after the end of whatever your birthday month is. I'll have to break up my slide rule. Yeah, sorry. I work in places that have lots and lots of regulations like that, so I am aware of how arcane and strange it seems. All right. So moving on to the 26th, April the 26th, 1819, the Odd Fellows Lodge forms. I... Ah. admittedly don't know much about the odd fellows i know it's kind of like i don't want to say it's like the freemasons in the sexy dan brown sense <laughs> yes they're they're not they're not tied to any huge conspiracies as far as i as i understand it yeah, it's it's a charitable organization and a brotherhood which is right. essentially what the Freemasons are without all the sexy conspiracy theories? I don't think the Oddfellows are, are tied back to any like weird and and mysterious group of knights who escorted pilgrims to the Holy Land and then stole all their money, you know, and were accused of witchcraft. The Oddfellows, if I'm correct, is an American organization where the Freemasons trace back to England. I think that there are a couple of organizations that tie into the Oddfellows. The Oddfellows is, goes back a long way, but it's just not documented well. The first lodge that formed is in 1819 is the first one that formed, I think, in the United States. But there had been organizations that had come and gone, I think, before then. So with stuff that rumor has it goes back as far as like Nero in Rome. And, oh, wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, their mission since 1819 has been to comfort the sick, bury the dead, and educate the children. And that's primarily what they do is raise money to do those things. So they'll provide aid to ill people. They will provide burial services to people who die destitute. And they provide scholarship money for children of members and others who are going off to college or private school or whatever. Turn of the century and up through the 1950s and 60s, they were an extremely large and, and very, very strong social organization. They're a lot less so now. Well, that's because Dan Brown didn't write any crazy-ass books about odd fellows. <laughs> It's true. It would be a much less pot boiler of a book had they been, <laughs> you know, it would be like, hey, look, it's a John J. Smith farmer guy. And what's he doing? Oh, he's raised 85 bucks at a town festival. And what's he doing? Oh, they're giving it as a scholarship. The end. Do you know anybody in the Oddfellows? Yeah, and my extended family, like, they're all tied into it it's one, in one way or another. My father-in-law uh, was like the Oh, God, forgive me for forgetting the titles, but the equivalent of whatever the Grand Poobah is, he was the grand, that guy, of the Oddfellows in some town in here in New Hampshire. I can't remember which town it was, but there's lodges all yeah. over. My brother was in the Freemasons, and he was Grand Poobah, or whatever it's called, Master of the Lodge, you know, for some time. And he wanted me to be, you know, involved with the Freemasons. And I went down to one or two of their ceremonies and god love them it's not for me though you know that was the same reaction i had was like this seems like a lot of work <laughs> <laughs> which is a terrible 
terrible way to look at it. Again, I'm, I think that the world has moved beyond the sort of, what's the phrase, the like weird and arcane ceremonies that don't seem to have any meaning uh, type things where it's like, oh, we'll pass this sword to that guy, and then that guy says a certain thing, and then that sword gets passed back to this dude, and then everybody puts the sword tips together. It's like, why are we doing this? What is this? Are we going to have a sword fight? No. Then put the swords away. But there's a lot of like weird arcane tradition that goes into it that I just don't understand, and I've reached the point in my life where I can continue my life happily without having to understand it. It's a double-edged sword. Ha ha ha. I kind of like the fact that there are these traditions that go back hundreds of years that are still carrying on. And I like it so much that other people are doing it. I just don't. I, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. I, I'm happy to be the passive observer yeah. of this one. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. I think boats are really cool, too. I just don't want to get on one. You know? <laughs> yeah, I, exactly. Like, you guys have a great time. I'm so glad you can go on that cruise. I, I have a shuffleboard app on my phone. I'll be thinking of you. No, if I want a projectile vomit, I'll just eat some, like, raw seafood. Because uh, that's what's going to happen if I find myself on a boat. All right. Moving on to the 27th. Uh, April 27th, 1986, guy named Captain Midnight. That's a sexy name. Yes. <laughs> he interrupts the HBO signal at midnight and puts up a message in text on top of a test pattern that says, Good evening, HBO, from Captain Midnight. $12.95 a month? No way! Showtime, movie channel beware. Which... You know, I guess if you're going to lodge a consumer complaint taking over the broadcast satellite that's carrying that signal and then sending a message back that everybody that has HBO tuned at midnight can see is one way to do it, but it's probably not the best way. Uh, so, Cliff Notes version, uh, this guy, Captain Midnight, was pretty pissed about the cost of HBO, which was $13 a month, which... In 19... 19- right now, I'd pay that. No. What? <laughs> like, 13 a month? It's too cheap not to yeah, have Yeah, my God. I mean, 13... How much does HBO Max cost now? I think I think HBO Max is, like, right around 13 bucks right? a month at the, the moment. The prices so. haven't gone up in 30-some-odd years? Right. I don't know. I think Captain Midnight ought to better calm down. So, anyway, <laughs> HBO is charging X amount of dollars, and then... As a protest, this guy hijacked their signal. Is that what happened? Yeah, kind of. His name is John McDougal. And that is not you know, a sexy name. A certain- Captain Midnight is way better. Well, John McDougal worked in a satellite relay place oh. on the night shift. So if you have access to a satellite dish, that happens to, when it's parked, be pointed at the HBO satellite. And you happen to be somebody who doesn't want to pay twelve ninety five for HBO on your satellite dish because that's... The, the gist of his complaint. Right. Then sending this complaint up is something that happens. And then he had, it was like 20 minutes this thing was up there. And he thought nobody would see it except for people in the HBO downlink station, I guess. I mean, he knows how satellites work, so I don't know why he didn't think everybody that was watching HBO at midnight wouldn't see it, but whatever. He ended up dueling for control of the satellite for about 20 minutes with a technician who was in the HBO downlink center. He was like, hey, something's going on. <laughs> Somebody's hijacked our satellite. So they started bumping up the transmission power on both ends and getting in sort of a control war over the two until they both realized that "Eh, this is probably going to burn the satellite up. So they stopped. (laughs) And then John McDougal sort of freaked out and like cut his connection and went home and tried not to think about it and came in the next day and played dumb. I'm going to guess that because we know his name, he got caught. He did indeed. (laughs) Because when you do things like that, it tends to attract attention from organizations that have federal at the very beginning of their acronym. So, 
the Federal Communications Commission, in coordination with the Federal Bureau of Investigation, realized that this was probably a national security issue if people could take over communication satellites. And it does not take a super genius to figure out that, like, well, there's 17 satellite uplink stations in the United States. Which one was broadcasting at midnight last night? Oh, that one in Florida. Well, who was working? John McDougal. Captain Midnight. All right. Well, it was that guy, you know. Elementary, my dear Watson. So he, he ultimately, he turned himself in, and this was before it was a felony to do this. He turned himself in, he got probation and a $5,000 fine, which in 86 money is like, that's like a, the cost of a Chevy Cavalier, so I guess it was pretty expensive. Oh, yeah, he could have probably and, bought uh, a bunch of HBO <laughs> subscriptions for that kind of money. He's really good, right? He think he should have saved his yeah. money. But uh, right after that, it went into law that effing around with communication satellites in orbit was going to not only bring a potential $5,000 fine, but some like hard, hard federal jail time. It's a felony oh, now. Yeah. And it's because that's, of good old Captain Midnight. That's probably in league with the piracy, you know, where you can, I think the fine is a quarter of a million dollars and up to six months in prison. Yeah. No fun. And I guess that the epilogue to this is he never did it again. All right, next day, on April the 28th of 2003, the iTunes store goes online. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Wow, 2003. Yeah, almost. It seems like almost 20 years yeah, ago. Yeah, exactly. 19, it, it's, we've been in the digital age for 19 years now. That's uh, cuckoo bananas. Uh, I still buy physical media, but not nearly as much as I used to. I think we've established on the show that I... I do listen to the majority of my music streaming now. I, I, I pay for Spotify. But there's certain bands, my boys there, Marillion, I still buy physical copies of all of their albums, sometimes multiple. I, I use the iTunes store surprisingly often. I tend to, if there's something I like, I might buy a single or two off of a record and then go and buy the album or the CD somewhere. Most recently, it's because I've been buying albums that have just haven't been printed yet or aren't available in any of the record stores that are around me for like a rational amount of money. Thanks, Adele. Again, I like the instant access to music, so I was able to go find a record that I wanted, that I want on vinyl, but I can still listen to it in my, you know, my iPod and on my phone and stuff with two clicks, and I buy the whole album, and it's super cheap. That made it really, really accessible and easy to use. That was before streaming. And now streaming has changed things considerably in just in the last, what, decade or so? I don't remember when streaming started to become the dominant way to pull down music. Right. Do you remember what was the first, like, thing you bought on iTunes? I mean, I've never had iTunes, so I can't say that. But I think the first song that I legally... <laughs> <laughs> legally downloaded was a song I had seen an episode of American Dad and there was a song that they used by a band called Wax Fang when I woke up the next morning I couldn't get the song out of my head so I went and I found it and I bought it I don't remember what the first song or the first album that I bought was but I remember that it was good that I could import the mp3s that I had from other sources the pre-itunes sources as long as they were tagged effectively and had the right file extension on them, I could drag them into the iTunes library and add them to my iTunes library and playlists and things and use it as a music manager as well as a storefront. But again, I don't remember what the first thing I bought was. I wonder if there's a way I could go find out. I've had iTunes pretty much since it came out in 2003. Yeah, I'm, I'm quite sure you could, you know, sort by, created by kind of a thing, yeah. I can tell you the last thing I bought on the iTunes store. Which is? I bought the two most recent singles by this German thrash metal band called Creator. Oh, I remember Creator. Me too. I just bought their two new singles. Oh, nice. <laughs> Creator with a K, right? Creator with a K. Yeah, that's them. All right. 
Uh, let's get on to the 29th. April 29th, or ultimately what becomes the last Friday in April, is Arbor Day. Oh, I know what that is. <laughs> That's the day when all the ships come into the arbor. That's right. It's the the holiday that's for an American holiday is, is April 29th, but it has been around since like the 1500s in one way or, the, or another. And it's a celebration of replanting felled trees and forest maintenance. So it's like the pre-Earth Day Earth Day. It is so important a holiday. It's got its own special. Yeah. Bill, do you remember the special? The Charlie Brown or the Peanuts or however you want to say it specials were so popular. I think Charles Schultz was just kind of dick swinging at that point and saying, you know what? I bet you I could make an Arbor Day special and it'll sell. And they did. There was It's Arbor Day Charlie Brown special that used to air on CBS. <laughs> and I'm sure that one came right before they he pitched, uh, let's do National Pancake Day. And they said, no, Charles. <laughs> but I wanted Pancake Day. <laughs> I wanted to do Pancake I should have done Pancake Day first. All right, so so, so I, what do we do? We plant trees on Arbor Day? Is that what it is? Yeah, that's generally what it's meant to, to follow up. You'll see a lot of imagery of like Johnny Appleseed is sometimes tied to Arbor Day as well. Whether or not they're related is is debatable. But it generally falls into a day that you spend doing outside things specific to sort of maintaining uh, wild spaces. And I, for one, like to spend my, at least the Friday afternoon of that day when I'm home from work, if it's not raining out, outside tending to my flowers and other things that I have on my deck. So Arbor Day is something I actually recognize as a thing. You better recognize. All right. Look, man, they don't give those specials away. You have to earn them. And Arbor Day earned it. All right. Here's something you better recognize. April the 30th, 1878, a guy by the name of Louis Pasteur lectures the French Academy of Science in favor of his theory that many diseases are caused by tiny organisms. So in other words, this was the discovery or putting forward of germ theory. Uh, And he was met by skepticism and much harumphing by many scientists of the day. Yeah, I think the science at the time was that the idea that diseases were caused by the four humors, you know, phlegm and blood and bile and some other, I don't remember what the other one, they're all gross. Wait, is it the four fluids of the body? It's, it is. Peter butter with bread. They call them the four humors. Peter butter with bread. It's uh, plasma, bile, water, blood. Peter butter with blood. Okay, yeah. <laughs> well, I'll take your word for it there, Louis Pasteur with one R. Um, that was a prevailing theory and that it could be treated by balancing those things out. Pretty much Louis Pasteur was a smart guy. He figured out how kind of stomachs worked and started to figure out how to isolate what those little tiny monsters were that caused things like tuberculosis or uh, diphtheria or dysentery and was able to say like, hey, you know, they, they can't be good to have these things. Maybe that's the cause. Again, we're dealing with like the very first kind of microscopes and really limited access to other scientists and scientific thought from around the world. He figured it out. It just took a long time for it to become normalized. How he started to demonstrate it was you can get really sick drinking raw milk, especially if it comes from a cow that's sick. But if you bring the milk up to boiling temperature or just under boiling temperature for a while, it kills all the bacteria in it and makes it not pure, but makes it sterile. That's called pasteurization. You do it under pressure. Huh. It's named for Louis Pasteur. Well, no shit. I did not know that. I honestly did not know that. I just, I'm such a ding dong. All this time, the pasteurization and all that, you know, yeah. cows hang out in a pasture. That's what I, I, I thought that was the pasture and pasteurization. I'm such a pasteurization means you ruined 
ruined everything. <laughs> I, I am the dispeller of myths. That's where pasteurized comes from. And to pasteurize milk is to boil out. Effectively, under pressure, you boil out all of the, the harmful bacteria that's in so it. I learned so much doing this show. <laughs> uh, all right. Hey, you know what goes good with milk? Our next day, what do we got? Ah, it does. May 1st, 1941, a day that will live in infamy. General Mills introduces Cheery Oats that it later renames as Cheery O's because Americans are lazy. They don't want to say that T word. So Cheery O's in 1945. An oat-based ready-to-eat cold cereal. Is it the first cold cereal? No. That all goes to Kellogg, who's trying to keep you from playing with yourself. Right. But General Mills Cheery Oats were... Really popular in the 1940s yeah, as an extension could eat them and of still oatmeal. Jerk off! I was like, <laughs> right? Oh, they encourage it, man. They put a picture on the box, like, yeah, not doing anything with that non-spoon holding hand, right? <laughs> you know. For anybody that's confused, our good friend Kellogg, uh, Mr. Kellogg's, uh, uh, invented cornflakes and put it forward as a deterrent for masturbation. Hand to God is the weirdest story I've ever heard in my life. But Cheerios apparently whack away, guys. <laughs> They're great for masturbating. Cheerios, which have been produced since 1941. It's not the longest run because I think uh, Kellogg was doing stuff in like the 1880s or 1890s. But man, I still love Cheerios. I still like them. I still associate them with a healthy breakfast, whether or not they are healthy or they're covered with sugar or chocolate or whatever. Yeah. I don't even care. Yeah. Two things about Cheerios. One, if I have plain Cheerios, I got to put a sugar packet on it. They're a little too bland for me. And two, those are the largest boxes of cereal available. They are so much bigger than every other box of cereal on the, on the shelf. They definitely rival Honeycomb for like, how much Cheerios do you want? All of them? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> We're going to need a it's second 11 car. Pounds. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, the thing is, you have to eat that whole box to get a daily's amount of uh, nutrition out of them. The rest of it is all fiber. Yeah. And like I said, yeah, they're still around. They're still, uh, they haven't changed much, although there's a bazillion different flavors of them now. Yeah. I, I think the big one when I was a kid was when they first came out with Honey Nut Cheerios. And that was like pretty much people were just eating that three times a day yeah. as, as like the stuff in the movie, the stuff. <laughs> Moving on to the celebrity birthdays. April the 25th, 1940, Al Pacino. And that's actually his. Oh, yeah. That's actually his real name. Uh, Alberto Pacino is his real name. I know him from such films as The Godfather. Yep. And that one with. <laughs> I'm sitting. I'm completely blanking on his films. It's terrible. Oh my god, Scarface. Awful. Scarface. <laughs> yes, the film that some of my friends in their formative years looked at as a documentary of how to be cool. Yes. I still don't understand it. But yeah, he's a fantastic actor, known primarily for being in crime and/or cop movies, and being a character with how shall we describe it? Differently pointing moral compass. Yes. Typically based on the circumstances that he's in. He's also in the remake of Insomnia, which I think is the only time that a remake. Exceeds the original film for quality. He actually, fun fact, he turned down the role of Han Solo. He was almost Han Solo in Star Wars. That would have been. I can't imagine that. That would have been something. <laughs> Jump to light speed, you know. <laughs> I I can't imagine that that would be the thing. Can you see that? Could you imagine him doing the scene like in the prison? You know, uh, nothing going on here, right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> that, you know, we're gonna have company. Hey, Luke. Yeah, doing yeah, doing it in Tony Montana's uh, accent. That would have been really fun. Right. <laughs> hey, Luke, we're going to have company. <laughs> All right, next up. All right. Uh, April 26th, 1960, Roger Taylor. From Queen? And I know you're thinking to yourself, Roger Taylor? <laughs> Queen's drummer was only 10 years old when they put out A Night at the Opera? 
No. No. Roger Taylor that we're talking about here is Roger Taylor from Duran Duran. Oh yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. Duran Duran had like three Taylors in the in that band. Yeah, in, they did. It was. I don't know why they didn't call themselves Taylor Taylor Taylor. Yeah, and yeah, none of them were related. They're just like super British. <laughs> It is the most British thing ever. <laughs> yeah, Roger Taylor from uh, Duran Duran. I think he was actually the first member to like split from the group. He took off. He ended up coming back many years later, but he he initially split from the group for health reasons. He was getting massive headaches and he couldn't play drums anymore. Has he come back around and does he still play? Yeah, I think he rejoined the band in the 2010s somewhere. Oh, I found some Tylenol. I'm, all, I'm good now. Yeah, I think Andy Taylor is the only one that didn't come back full time. Mm. You've got enough tailors. Yeah, yeah. This, pl- this place is lousy with tailors. It's <laughs> just too many tailors. It's it's enough. It sounds like a name for a band. It's, well, you can be Taylor Taylor for all I care. I'm not into Duran Duran anymore. All right, moving on to April the 27th, 1899. A guy by the name of Walter Lance. Um, hey. Yeah, Walter Lance is the cartoonist that created Woody Woodpecker. I remember growing up watching those cartoons as a little kid. Yeah. My favorite from that block of cartoons was Chili Willy, which Walter Lance also created. I like the Chili Willy ones because, one, Chili Willy didn't show it very often. Two, when he, they did show him, he didn't talk. So when there was a cartoon when he did talk, which very few and far between, it was like something special. It was like finding a four-leaf clover almost. And with Woody Woodpecker... Uh, Walter Lance's wife, Gracie Lance, she actually did the voice for Woody Woodpecker. So that laugh of his, yep, that's his wife. She must have been a joy to have around the house. <laughs> I'm just going to give her a job on the cartoon so she'll yeah, trust me. Yep. All right, yes. next up. April 28, 1950, American comedian and late night talk show host Jay Leno. And Dorito Shill. <laughs> and Dorito Shill, born in New Rochelle, New York. I have generated a lot of respect for Jay Leno after listening to a couple of interviews recently. One of the things that I do, as you know, Bill, is I I teach management theory and other stuff to the people that I work with and supervisory skills and leadership and things. And I watched an interview with him where he was asked about how much money he made on The Tonight Show. And he's like, I don't know. I was making 30 million a year for 10 years. Then I I got half. And he's well, how can we get half? He's like, well, they're going to lay off half of the staff. So I'm in a staff meeting and I said to the staff, I said, all right, who are you here? thinks I should cut my salary in half so that we can keep the, the whole staff together. And he says it was the only time that I went against the vote. So he's, he was out, he like voted to cut his own salary to keep those people employed. And the rest of the people were like, don't do it. And he did it anyway. Oh, wow. So he was able to keep, yeah. And I was like, God, that's great. That's leadership. That's how you do it. Right. That's the way that you demonstrate it, like and, by doing that kind of thing. And that's a thing too, like at what point is too much money? You know, that and there's a shining example. I did not know that story. You know, Jay Leno was never somebody that really landed on my radar too much. But wow, do I have a lot of respect for him now. He actually kind of like lives in the area, I guess, because my friend Tom manages a Walmart, uh, you know, in Rhode Island. Jay Leno comes in there occasionally. He's got like pictures with him and stuff. I'm going to guess he's going in there to buy, like, oil filters for one of his 7,000 cars. Or something, right, yeah. I, I need I some spark plugs, eh? But I guess he's a cool guy. Again, in that same interview, he, they asked him, like, well, $30 million a year. He's like, yeah, I, I've never touched it. It's all in a bank account. It, what? He's like, yeah, I, I, he's, I make my, I'm a comedian. I make my money by touring and going and doing shows. That's, that's how I survive. Right. Everything else just went into a bank account. I don't even know what's in there. <laughs> I saw the picture of him, and it's like, he's just like a normal dude. Like, yeah. his hair was less than kempt. Shall we say? Yeah. 
And he had like the Canadian tuxedo, you know, all in like a denim jacket and, and stuff like that. Just like super like regular dude that happens to have a ton of money. All right, moving on to the 29th, April the 29th of 1944. My favorite second banana of 1970s and 80s sitcoms. Richard Klein, who... Who? Exactly. Richard Klein, who Generation X would know as Larry Dallas on Three's Company. Remember? I'd say some of Generation X. I'm not... I'm one of the ones who's like, what's his name again? <laughs> yeah, Richard Klein. You remember Larry, the guy that lived upstairs? I, yes. He was, I, uh, you had to explain who he was to me, but yes. Yeah. I, I, Jack's oversexed best friend there. Yeah. Like, that's what he's primarily known for. I was like, I think that's the only thing he's ever done. But no, I looked up his IMDb. He's got a ton of stuff. It's just that he's a TV character actor, like one of those couple of episodes here and there of 100,000 different shows. He actually teaches classes at like a, a university of, about comedic acting. Most recently, he was touring with Wicked. You know, the, the broad, oh, yeah, yeah, Broadway yeah. show the, Wicked? Based on the book Wicked, Witch of the West. Yeah, he plays the Wizard of Oz. Oh, hey. The, awesome, that's cool. In the touring uh, production of Wicked, yeah. All right, and moving on. April 30th, 1926, comedian and actress Cloris Leachman. Who? <laughs> <laughs> she's won a couple of Oscars and she's won a couple of Emmys. She was on, like, the Mary Tyler Moore show. She was uh, Frau Blucher in Young Frankenstein, which is probably where m most people will remember her from. Sure. Uh, the woman who's, when her name was said, the horses would all whinny. <laughs> no matter who said it, when. She's very, very funny. And she's always played, like, off-the-wall kind of second banana characters, except for in the Mary Tyler Moore show, where she was a little bit more straight-laced, but she's really funny. Uh, yeah, I looked up her IMDb, and that's, it's like, it's like Richard Klein. You think that you only know her from one thing, but she's got a bazillion. She's in a lot of Mel Brooks films. And she was on Mary Tyler Moore, and she was also on Rhoda. Rhoda was a spinoff of Mary. Yeah, her character, I think, on that show was Phyllis. She had some of that, like, weird Betty White energy for a while, where she'd just show up in, like, films that you wouldn't expect to find Cloris Leachman in, like Beer League, um, right. that the Broken Lizard guys put out, or in Bad Santa. But, it's, again, every time you see her, she's she's funny. She's a funny, funny, funny actress. All right, and wrapping up the birthdays on May the 1st, 1954, your friend and mine, Ray Parker Jr. Now, Ray... Who, who are you going to call? Exactly. Ray Parker Jr. Uh, most famously is going to be known as the guy who sang the Ghostbusters theme. When I was writing down the name, I was like, yeah, Ray Parker Jr., the luckiest man on earth because they asked him to do the Ghostbusters theme. Everybody knows that song. That song... Right has so many listens on on Spotify and all that. And I was laughing because I was like, the guy's, what else has he done, right? This is where I got my laugh, right? I'm looking at his Spotify. The top five ones are Ghostbusters, and then there's yep. Ghostbusters. And then a couple down, it says Ghostbusters instrumental version because f Ray Parker Jr. apparently, right? <laughs> But uh, no, actually, prior to his Ghostbusters fame, our friend Ray was in a band called Radio, spelled R-A-Y-D-O, um, D-I-O. They had a, a few hits. I was listening to Ray Parker Jr.'s greatest hits, and one of the songs on there was called You Can't Change That. And I was like, shit, I know this song. And then there's a couple of other songs on there. I was like, man, I know all these songs. They were all, you know, standard radio songs in the la the late 70s and stuff. Yeah. Definitely had some stuff that is known. You just don't know that you know it. Right. 
I always like Ghostbusters. Certainly of the music that came out of the films, nobody remembers the Bobby Brown song that came out of Ghostbusters 2. I like the other one there uh, from Ghostbusters. I can't remember the band that did it, though. They were called... Uh, the name of the song was Cleaning Up the, the Bus Boys. Bus Boys. So, the Ghostbusters song, I mean, I think a lot of people just like singing along with it, you know? And then uh, the Bobby Brown one, yeah, that song that could easily be... The worst song ever. But we don't have Bobby Brown for the worst song ever this week, Jeff. No, we don't. What do we have? We have a song by a band, and I'm saying band with my air quotes, my patented air quotes, but it's a vocal group, so it's four guys who sing. Also questionable. (laughs) Also questionable. I want to start this off by saying Tyrannosauruses were probably assholes. So when the comet strike hit and wiped out life on Earth millions upon millions of years ago. It probably was a, not a terrible thing that Tyrannosauruses got killed. Other dinosaurs, I'm sure they were nice. Tyrannosauruses were pretty sure were jerks. Yeah. So when Nirvana became a thing and wiped out life in the music landscape, one of the things that they took out was this like weird subgenre of super soft soul that was really, really popular for a short time that comes out of that Philadelphia-style sound with boys to men... And Belle Biv DeVoe and another bad creation. And ultimately, a band that worked with all those producer guys from that same area, Color Me Bad. Ooh. Color Me Bad. <laughs> yeah. And they are. I'd color them awful. I'd, <laughs> I'd grayscale them bad. They're just, they're not a good band. Color Me Atrocious. Color Me Overplayed. Yeah. They have an interesting story, but the song that we're talking about today is not a song about interesting stories. It's a song called. <sighs> I loathe even to say the I name. Know, it's I want to sex you it's up. Embarrassing <laughs> it's embarrassing to even say it. What's it called? It's embarrassing to even say it. I want to sex you up, and it has some of the least interesting lyrics ever. And here's the clip. remember whenever this came out it was one of those things where is like is, is this a joke is this are you playing a joke on me because boy bands were really you know popular at that time the new kids on the block were still kind of cleaning up in uh 1989 you know 1988 1989 and so all these little like teenaged like boy bands all right they're raking in some money what if we do a boy band with a bunch of guys in their mid to late 20s? How would that sell? <laughs> their history is interesting. So where you have boy bands that are set up by like Maurice Starr, for example, who finds the talent and pulls them together and teaches them how to dance together and all this other jazz. These guys were all friends in high school and elementary school and were doing this together before there were anybody to scout them. And what they would do is they'd figure out where somebody famous was. And then they'd go sing to them as they left a restaurant or a theater or something. Did they not get arrested? Not only did they not get arrested, but they got gigs out of it. So they ended up opening for bands. They opened for, like, John Bon Jovi. Can you just imagine, like, Bon Jovi walking out of some, like, New Jersey bar, and there's, like, the guy that looks like Arnold Horshack, but with long hair. (laughs) Going, I want to sex you up. It's like, you are under arrest, sir. Put your hands on the car. 
It's like, hey, look, you know, uh, I'm John Bon Jovi. Generally, I don't swing this way. No. Um, they would sing other songs, like doo-wop songs and stuff, to these guys to show that they had chops, because there's two tenors, one vocalist is how it's described <laughs> in the history of the band, but I don't know if, if, he's, if he has that sort of classification, but there are two tenors and one bass and this guy. And, baritone. And baritone, that's the one. And ultimately... Um, they ended up getting noticed by doing this, and eventually they they sang to one of the guys from from Bell Biv DeVoe, and he's like, "Oh, you want to talk to our manager? It's this guy." And the manager's like, "Hey, you want to come and meet Tony, Tony, Tony? Move to New York City." So they moved to New York City, and they sang for Tony, 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 and they opened for Tony, Tony, Tony. And before long, they were opening for like twenty and thirty thousand people. So in the course of this, they were asked to put together a song for the New Jack City soundtrack, which a film that. I remember loving when it came out in like 1980. Now hold on a second. And I tried to watch Wait, it. Wait, back up two seconds, okay? Now yeah. New Jack City, that's like a gangster movie, isn't it? It is indeed. Okay. Yes. Color me bad. I'm looking at a picture of them right now. They look about as hard as a overly ripe tomato. Honestly. Yes. You got one guy who I already mentioned who kind of looks like Arnold Horshack. Mm-hmm. Another one that looks like an effeminate version of George Michael. Somebody that looks like the fourth Ghostbuster and Millie Vanilli got put into a Hadron Collider. And <laughs> and then another guy who looks like a, <laughs> a white version of Vanilla Ice. Is what yeah. <laughs> that's that's Brett Bradley or something, the singer. I, I think that's his name. I can't remember. There's like so many people in the band yeah. that have been in and out of the band. I can't remember. I don't know. His goatee anyway. is microscopic. It is one hair wide going around, yeah. Yes. Well, anyway, they were offered to write a song for, or pu- pull a song together for New Jack City, and they went to a guy named Dr. Freeze, who was the, one of the songwriters that worked with Another Bad Creation and Bell Biv DeVoe and stuff, and he's like, oh, I've got this song here. Take this one. And he gave him I Want to Sex You Up, which, it's a song. I've heard songs yeah. before, yeah. I've heard songs before. This one is just super-duper repetitive. So it's got like a, you and I have talked before when we talked about another bad creation, that that um, empty snare, that that literally goes on for four and a half minutes of this song. It never freaking stops. It is so goddamn irritating as it goes on. And it's got the non-main lead singers of the band sort of whispering out a couple of lyrics over and over and over again all the way through the song. If you look at certain lyric sites, it just says incomprehensible. <laughs> but it's 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 actually spelled out in a couple of others. I thought the incomprehensible was really funny. I'm just and, looking. I'm looking at the pictures of these guys, and I'm just like, I don't know, because I'm not a girl, nor have I ever been a girl. I certainly wasn't a girl in 1989. But like, I don't know. These guys just seem to have all the sex appeal of like, I don't know, a car accident that you know with a cactus. I think it's it's what's known in physics as the inverse shoulder pad size to head size re- ratio. So if you look at pictures of them, like they're all wearing like suit jackets with they look like the Chicago Bears in some of these pictures because their shoulder pads and their jackets are so big. Oh yeah, like David Byrne would look at them and go, "Yeah, that's a bit much, I think." Right, exactly. You think you could tone it down a little bit there, buddy? You know. Now the singer guy, like the main guy there, the one that I said looks like a, a white version of Vanilla Ice, uh, Brian Abrams. I'm looking at recent pictures of him, and he could yeah. probably still fit into those clothes, but they would be snug. He is rotund. He is almost unrecognizable. He's a large dude. 
he left the band a couple of records later, and he's like a youth pastor in Texas or something now. Are you sure he's not the singer for Smash Mouth? Because they could be the same person. I... <laughs> hey there, he's an all-star. I'm like looking at him. You put a bucket hat on this guy, and that could be him. And then he could start doing monkeys covers. There you go. Oh, it ruined my life. Oh. The reason that I pull this song in is because... because it sucks? <laughs> it's because, because the song sucks. It has some really, really hilarious lyrics that... I've never looked at this song in any detail, Bill. This song was on the radio 40 trillion times a day when it was out, to the point where I didn't like it just by virtue of it being on. Yeah. But it has it has lyrics like, Girl, you make me feel real good. We, we can do it till we both wake up. <laughs> yeah, that's romantic. What? There are subgenres on yes. Reddit for those kind of videos. I know. I, I always just picture like these four... Dudes, like, just, like, chasing a girl around a club, you know, just going, I want to sex you up, and then just, like, getting beat up by the bouncers because they're stalking this poor girl. Jeez. They definitely do look like a Chess King ad that's just come to life (laughs) and is now traveling together as, like, a four-part monster that must be dealt with. So, listening to this song as many times as I had to listen to it today and reading the lyrics as many times as I had to today, which I feel like you owe me. You picked the song! (laughs) It's true. I, if I have to describe, like, the experience of spending this much time with this song, Call Me Bad's I Want to Sex You Up. I don't know if you've ever accidentally sprayed, like, Aquanet hairspray directly into your own face, but that's what this song is like. It's like, <laughs> it's sticky, it's cloying, it smells terrible, you can't wash it off, it won't go away, your hair sticks up like mad when you hear it, and it's blinding. It's blinding and deafening all at the same time. And flammable. And, fl- and flammable. <laughs> yes, watch for those candles, ladies. Um, not a good song. All right, uh, Jeff, I don't want to sex you up, but I do want to take you to the Smithsonian Institute and play some video games. Okay. This is the answer to our very popular and always well-received uh, trivia question from before. In the Smithsonian Institute, they have three video games on display. There is Pong, there is Pac-Man, and there is a third video game. What is the third video game on display in the Smithsonian Institute? Oh, I'm torn, Bill. I'm torn because part of me wants to just blurt out Space Invaders. But then part of me thinks that it's the Smithsonian Institution and it probably has like that first cabinet of Space War, which which is a precedes both Pac-Man and uh, Pong. Nope. <laughs> no, it's neither of those. Right. Okay. All right, so uh, I'm going to guess the, lo- the logic for having this video game in there is Pong was the first arcade game. Yeah. And then Pac-Man was the big first big, like, blockbuster, crazy... Super hit, yeah. Crazy big game. So the next logical step is uh, the first Laserdisc video game. So the third video game is Dragon's Lair. Dragon's Lair, I never would have guessed that. With Dirk the Daring. Yep. Never would have guessed that in a thousand years. Yep. Thank God we're not doing this show a thousand years from now. Right. That is, yep, the third video game on display in the Smithsonian Institute is Dragon's Lair. And I bet nobody plays it there either. Yeah, because it's 50 cents. <laughs> <laughs> it's 50 cents. You might as well just throw the 50 cents to another kid because it's like right, left. Damn it, I'm done. Yeah. I'm dead. Dirk the Daring's been killed again. All right, but that's going to wrap up this week's show. We will see you back here in seven days. Say goodnight, Jeff. Goodnight, Jeff. Bye, guys. Bye, everybody. A special thanks to James Costa for our theme music. Find us or message us on Facebook or Instagram at Twibbly or 
T-W-W-W-B-L-Y. Subscribe if you haven't already. And tell your friends. Twibley is approved by Emperor Norton, protector of Mexico and friend to Canada.